in the Apostles' Creed, uh, just going through the things in the Apostles' Creed. And uh, before we do that, I just want to mention um, that uh, it was interesting. Uh, I just want to say welcome to Jeff and Jenny and to their family uh, here today. And uh, I just want to say to you as a church, uh, you've, you've just tre- been a tremendous blessing to them. And it was, it was incredible yesterday just to see um, your love and your care that I know they appreciate very much. But also uh, for Jeff and Jenny, just to, just to also say that their, your in- example um, in the midst of suffering, um, your example of trusting Christ has been an example to us. And so I just want to say thank you for that. And that, that's been a huge encouragement to many people that I talked to yesterday. And so, so man, we are praying for you guys. Uh, and God, God continue to bless you guys. And as I think about this, um, so yesterday I was preparing two messages this week. One uh, for the death of a child. And today, the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It was sort of odd for me at one point just to think about those two things. But as I thought about it, I thought, what a, what a fitting moment for us because it's the birth of the one that gives us hope in life and in death in the other. That the reason why we can have hope that goes beyond this life, that goes beyond the grave, the only reason why we can have any hope whatsoever to, to cling to anything whatsoever is because of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so I pray today that in one sense it would be a continuation for us from yesterday to today to just proclaim our Lord's birth, to, to proclaim why it is so important that he came to this earth in the flesh um, for our sake. So that's what we're going to do today uh, is continue on that lines. Um, it was interesting as I was studying this week, I did not realize this because I haven't, I haven't studied the virgin birth for a long time. And by the way, just a note before we go there, is uh, I don't know if this is on in the monitors, but it's like echoing in my ear, just so you know. Um, it'll, it'll distract me, but uh, <coughs> that's not what I was going to say. The reason why we have creeds in the first place, the reason why we have confessions, which are longer uh, versions of creeds, is it was simply Christians' ways of, of writing down in very succinct forms the very things that are foundational to our faith. It was a way for us to quickly and easily affirm this is, this is our faith. This is what we believe as Christians. This is the foundation. This is the hope that we have in, in a very clear and concise form. These, these creeds are not the Bible, all right? But if they're worth anything at all, They are rooted in the very truths that Scripture proclaims about our faith. Otherwise, we should throw them out. They have no use whatsoever. But the reason why they can be helpful is because it can help us concisely profess, here's what we believe. Here's why we believe it. And so that's why we thought it would be interesting to go through the Apostles' Creed. And I know there are statements in there that Pastor Nick's talked about. When we get there, we'll explain uh, some of the intricate details, a few of those statements at the end uh, that we'll make. But but today, we are affirming uh, two things. That it it talks about the fact that, that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And it's, it's crucial, it's a crucial thing for us to consider this truth today. I did not realize that in church history, and certainly in the modern times, 
until I started studying this, I didn't realize how much, uh, how much this doctrine of the, the miraculous conception of Jesus has been under attack. How much, this is like one of the most hotly debated and easily thrown aside doctrines in Christian faith. I did not realize that. But as I began to read uh, and read and read more, I was completely blown away at how much people have been debating and wrestling over this truth of the, the virgin birth of our Savior Jesus. It blew me away. Um, in fact, some very well-known pastors, of whom I won't name today, but whom many of you would know very well if I was to say their names, very prominent pastors in America, um, even just this last Christmas, maybe one of, Christmas, one of the most prominent ones in America that many of you probably have listened to many times, uh, just said, made a comment and said that the virgin birth is embarrassing, that it's really the part of Christmas, that the Christmas story would be, would be a wonderful and amazing story if it wasn't for this strange mythological thing of the virgin birth. It just seems strange to explain. And I, I read many pastors that are currently on your televisions who, who would say the very same things. And I thought to myself, honestly, I'm trying not to be like sarcastic, but I thought, have they not read the Bible? Like, we're going to pick out the virgin birth to pick on? Really? Like, that's somehow outrageous? In light of the fact that we believe, in fact, the rest of this creed, we believe in an almighty God who is everlasting and eternal, who created the earth by the very power and words of his mouth out of nothing. We believe in a God who who causes 99-year-old people to have babies. We believe in a God who parts Red Seas and and parts the Jordan River, we believe in a God who heals the sick, makes the blind to see, raises people from the dead, most significantly of which was himself. We believe in that God, an all-powerful, almighty God who can do anything. And somehow the virgin birth is the thing that freaks us out. I really don't understand it, to be honest. I'm blown away. In fact, that's the detail of the Christmas story that they... That a person would choose to go, that's really strange. It doesn't seem so strange if you've read all of your Bible, if you see our God. And in fact, what it made me think of was it made me think of the prophets of old or Job or in Job where God says, who are you, O man? Who are you to talk back to God and to tell God how he should come to this earth and redeem mankind? Who are we? Pastor, scholar, doctor's degree, whatever. Who are we to somehow talk back to God and inform him of how he ought to have come to earth? In fact, many of them have said God could have come to earth in many ways. We don't have to believe in the virgin birth. And my answer is simply to go, but he didn't come in many ways. He chose the means for which he would come to this earth and save you and I, sinful people, from our sins that we might be reconciled to God. He chose the virgin birth as the means by which he would come. That's the way he chose to come. And so we absolutely ought to affirm it. And it's not just that we ought to affirm it, but the very details of the virgin birth affirm who our Savior is. And without those details, without how God, without the very details of how God came to this earth, we would have no hope here today at all. 
And so my answer to those pastors and to every one of us, maybe even here, whoever would question the virgin birth, is it essential? It absolutely matters. It is crucial to our faith, and it ought to be affirmed in a creed in which we proclaim this is absolutely essential to our salvation, without which there would be no hope whatsoever. And so, with that, uh, we're going to take a moment to read one of those accounts. We're going to look at several passages this morning, and I'm just going to really, we're going to paint a really big picture of the virgin birth and why it matters Uh, But we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 26 to 38. Let me just read those verses. And to affirm uh, the truthfulness of God's word, the fact that these words are God's words, breathed out by God, inspired by him and errant, uh, let's stand and let's read it. Uh, I'll read it to you. Uh, Follow along. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And I want you just, as I read this, um, just think of what, what is... Just let the text, you've heard this text, right? You've heard this many times, but, but listen to it fresh. Pray for God to let you hear exactly what he's saying here. And in a sense, you be the judge as to how clear it is that, of what this text actually says, how, how crystal clear it is in terms of how Jesus became a man and came to this earth. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing is impossible, will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Oh God, what an amazing, amazing truth. God, would you cause our hearts to think fresh about this story that we typically look at mostly at Christmas, unfortunately. But God, today... In this moment, may we see the incredible truth in the way that you chose to come to this earth and to take on flesh in order to purchase our salvation through your son's death and resurrection. And so God, would you give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand that we might see the truth today that you would have us see. 
that our faith would be strengthened and affirmed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What we're going to do is talk about just two things, the biblical basis for the virgin birth as well as why it matters. I'm just going to give you several points. Why does this matter? Why is it so important? Why are the little details of it so important? Um, But just consider this as we dive into some texts. Consider what Paul says to the Corinthians. Paul says this, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Just think about that for a minute. Paul's talking to people who, who, who are very wise debaters. They live in a culture that thrives on knowledge and knowing and debate and who's kind of got the one up, who's the smarter one. And Paul says to them, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, you and I and every person who's ever existed on this planet will never come to know God. I mean to truly know him because of your wisdom and your understanding. You will not. In fact, God will not even allow you, according to Paul. Because if you could, by your own smarts, by your own wisdom, come to understand an infinite God, then you would be patting yourself on the back, right? You would be looking down your nose going, why don't you understand? Duh. Right? And and yet, what does Paul say? He says, for it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The actual words and things that we're going to preach today are not folly. That's not what Paul's saying. People misunderstand that. But he's saying to this wise world around us, they see what we're preaching as folly. But to those who are being saved, it is life, right? God will not let us. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, God knows our hearts, right? He knows that we would love to take credit for our own salvation. We would love to affirm our own wisdom And yet God shatters our wisdom. He accomplishes your salvation in a way that makes absolutely zero sense from the wisdom of this world, from the the natural understanding of things. And so it doesn't surprise us who are saved, us who understand the Bible, that God would choose this way, a means that none of us would write a story like this. This is not the way we would choose it. But God would do it in such a way that would affirm His wisdom, that his ways, as Isaiah said, are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. Who can discern? And so, where is the wise man among us? Where is the debater, as Paul says? God has made foolish their wisdom. He's confounded them. He's chosen to save us in a way that makes no human sense. And yet it's glorious and beautiful. So, We'll let you be the judge of that. The biblical basis. Three, three things here. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is what many have called 
the Proto-Evangel, which is basically the gospel that was preached in advance. And Genesis chapter 3.15 is after the fall of mankind in the garden, God comes and he pronounces a curse, a curse upon Satan, a curse upon the man, a curse upon the woman, Uh, the creation itself is cursed, because prior to sin, things were as they ought to be. Sin came into the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and everything became corrupted by sin. Death entered the world. We, We experienced this yesterday, the reality of the corruption and the brokenness of this world as a result of sin. And as a result of that, there was a curse pronounced over all of creation, over every person, every human being. And in that curse, however, comes this little shiny glimmer of hope. It's the first mention of the gospel, many would say. And basically, Jesus or God says to the serpent, he's speaking to Satan, and he says, I am going to put enmity between you and the woman. Eve, I'm going to, in other words, I'm going to, I'm going to create, there's going to be a war, there's going to be enmity between the two of you, and then he says, and between your offspring and her offspring. So, just a note here, so if you want to know what the Old Testament is about, people always say the Old Testament seems to be full of wars and chaos and all kinds of problems. Of course there is, Right? Because there's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. And God said he's going to put enmity between them and they're going to be at war. Until God should come and put an end to it all, right? So when people, in fact one of these pastors I said who was denying the virgin birth has now declared that the Old Testament is embarrassing and shameful. And I would say because it seems so hard to read and there's so much difficulty. You're going, of course there's difficulty, Because there's sin in the world. The Old Testament looks very much like it looks on the daily news right here, right? Looks like what it looks like in India right now. It's chaos and craziness and horrible things happen. And so it's not a surprise at all. When you read your Old Testament, you should not be surprised at war and death and horrible things happening. Because there's enmity between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There is a war that is waging, but but there's this promise of hope. He shall bruise or crush your head. Now, who's the he here? Notice that it's singular. It's a singular here. He, meaning there's an offspring, one particular offspring who's coming, who's going to bruise, or the word means to crush the head of Satan, and you, Satan, will bruise his heel. So Satan is going to nip at the heel, But there's one offspring coming someday who's going to crush Satan's head. And friends, this is the first sign after the fall of man, after the corruption of all things of hope, right? God is pronouncing here. Notice who he's pronouncing it to. He's saying to his enemy, to Satan himself, let me tell you, you're going to nip at the heel of my people, but I'm sending one, not many, One, and he's going to put an end to you. He's going to crush your head. This sets in motion the whole story of the Bible. This brings us to Luke chapter 1, right? This is what the Bible is about. It's about God being faithful to all of his promises. This is what the virgin birth is about. It's about our God 
coming through, making good on all of his promises to send us that one who would come and save us from our sins, who would crush the enemy of our souls, Satan. And so this is the first picture of things being set in motion, that there has to be someone born, right? There has to come an offspring born of the woman in order for this promise to be fulfilled. And God is faithful to his promises. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is another spot in which we see a, promise, or we see a prophecy made. And in Isaiah 7.14, it's one that you, you know uh, very well. In Isaiah 7 verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. For behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, when it comes to prophecies in the Old Testament, they had, they had fulfillments in the time in which they were announced, right? So it wasn't as though this is only a picture going forward to Jesus. There was actually some real things happening. In fact, King Ahaz, the king of Judah at that time, was completely not trusting God, completely unfaithful, and God was, was coming to him through the prophets and announcing, hey, trust me, I will, I will be faithful to you. There was a war going on. He didn't trust God. He made an alliance with an evil nation. And God is saying, look, I'm going to give you a sign, right, a sign of my faithfulness and my presence. And so he, so he gives them this sign that you will, there will be a virgin and she will give forth a, or have forth a son and you will call him Emmanuel. There's, a, there's an actual fulfillment back there, but it points to, and we don't know this when we're reading this, if we didn't have the New Testament, but in Matthew chapter 1, we jump over to Matthew chapter 1, and what does Matthew tell us? In Matthew's account of the virgin birth, starting in verse 18, he says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Notice what it says, from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And listen what, what Matthew affirms. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He quotes Isaiah 7:14. For behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. See, Matthew, in recording, in, in the the birth of Jesus points back and tells us that this was ultimately about this. It was about this here, but ultimately it pointed forward to an even greater fulfillment in Jesus. And then we have the gospel accounts themselves. I think it's important for us simply to look, as we just read uh, Matthew and we also read Luke, to consider from the gospels, uh, you saw how Matthew affirms this, but just think about this for a moment with Luke. Especially in light, of, in light of those who would doubt the, the virgin birth, in light of those who would see this as strange, um, this angel shows up to Mary, which that to me would be the strange part, right? Can you imagine? I mean, I'm just, that would be pretty amazing, right? So an angel shows up and speaks to a human being. Uh, that's pretty radical, pretty crazy. I mean, we had that happen this week? I don't think so. All right, so angel Gabriel shows up. 
right, and says to, to Mary, who's never been with a man. She's unmarried, she's a virgin, and he says, you're going to have a child. That's pretty wild. And Mary, so he says, he says behold, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus. And here's what he's going to be like. He's not going to be ordinary. He's not going to be a normal run-of-the-mill kid here. No, no, no. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. By the way, that's a quotation from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13, 11 to 13, which was prophesied that there's going to come one that's going to eventually set on the throne of David, whose kingdom will never run out, who will be eternal who will save the people from their sins, right? And so here, Mary hears this news, basically the angel saying, you're it, (laughs) you're the one, you're going to have a son, and this is who he's going to be in fulfillment of these prophecies. You're going to carry the Messiah. And of course, she asked this wonderful question, right? She also had doubts, right? She was human. She's going, "Uh, Gabriel, (laughs) wait a minute, Um, how's this going to happen? I'm a virgin, right? I love that little question because it's the same question that all of us would have, right? It's a normal, like a doubt, right? It's a moment of doubting. She's going, that sounds wonderful. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get how you're going to do this, God. And so the angel answers and the angel affirms what we affirm today in the Apostles' Creed. The angel says, Mary... This, this baby in you that's going to be conceived is not going to be conceived the normal way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High God will overshadow you, which means to, he will take over. He's going to take over for a moment. He's going to inhabit your body. He's going to take this over. He's going to do something in you that's completely from on high. It's a supernatural work. He is going to conceive a child in you. Not through Joseph, not through any man, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice the result. The result is, because God's going to do it this way, which gets me almost into my next section, but because God does it this way, look at the therefore. The power, uh, it says the the most high is going to overshadow you, therefore. Because of the way in which God's going to accomplish this. Because of the very means that God is going to use to, for, for this child to come into the earth. Because of the, the, the virgin birth, the spirit, miraculous conception in you by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy and the son of God. And so... I don't think this passage is very fuzzy, do you? Does it look fuzzy? Even if you think it's crazy, it doesn't seem like the Bible's, uh, even, if, even if you're here today and you completely don't believe any of this, it's pretty easy to read it and go, the Bible simply affirms that it's true, that this is the way God did it. I think it's also important to, to see that Paul, in the book of Galatians, in chapter 4, verse 4, he also affirms this birth 
He, he says that, that, that there is, there's going to come a time. He says, for, for in the, the rightness of time, or when things were just right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law so that we might be adopted as sons. It's Galatians 4, verse 4. Isn't that powerful? Our very adoption as God's children into his family is dependent upon God coming to this earth in the flesh. It's crucial, right? You can't, you can't go around this. So let me just go through several things. Why does it matter? Why then? So there's the passages in the Bible. There's many other little passages we'll get to, and we'll get to some of them here in a minute. But let's just turn the corner and go, why does this matter? Why is it so crucial? Why is every little detail important? The first thing I want to say is that the virgin birth, to, to affirm the virgin birth, it affirms the truthfulness of God's word. And I want to start with that one. I want to say to the person who is doubting this to go, if, if we doubt the Bible at this point, if we somehow say that, well, this one thing seems strange and so it must not be true then we're completely rejecting the truthfulness of Scripture. And, and so to reject the virgin birth, in essence, is to reject God's Word. Right? To reject what it plainly teaches to us. And therefore is ultimately to reject God and to reject the means that God has provided for you and me to be saved. Right? I mean, there's the, there's the slippery slope, Right? If we say this is not true, then we are literally saying to God, I reject the very means that you chose in order to come to this earth in the form of a man and to die on a cross so that I might be saved from my sins and be made right with God. That's a powerful thing. I love how in the Gospel of Luke, in the story, that Luke, the passage I didn't point out much in verse 37 I love what, what the angel Gabriel actually affirms to Mary. So Mary obviously is having normal doubts, right? And what does the angel say in verse 37? For nothing, after just saying that not only are you going to have a baby, but also your relative Elizabeth, who is in her old age, she's pregnant with John the Baptist. And he says, and then he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now this is not a new statement is actually quoting, the angel, Gabriel, is quoting Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. And you know what happened in Genesis 18, verse 14? 99-year-old Sarah and 99-some-year-old Abraham have been promised 20 years prior, God said, I'm going to give you a son. And that son, of, on him, of him, I'm going to make him into a great nation, and the whole world is going to be blessed through him. What is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, ultimately, eventually. That of his offspring, everyone in the world would be blessed. And so, God makes this promise. 20 years go by, Abraham and Sarah are old, way beyond childbearing years, and God shows up in Genesis 18 and says and affirms his promise to them, and they're having some doubts, right? As, as all of us would, right? Again, normal doubts, right? And God says, hey, no, I'm just, I'm just here to tell you, I am going, you are going to have a child. And what happens? Sarah laughs at God, just like you probably would, right? You'd be like, are you kidding me? I'm 99 years old. 
Are you crazy? She laughs. And then God has this little conversation with Abraham about his wife laughing. And God says, is anything too hard for me? And at the exact time that God said, in fulfillment of his promise to them, Sarah became pregnant with a child and had a son, Isaac. And so the angel here affirms to Mary, and this would be my affirmation to all of us to go, is there really anything impossible for God to do? Is it so far-fetched to think that the sovereign king of the universe, who's not bound by space and time, who's unlimited in power, unlimited in wisdom, that somehow he can't cause his son to be born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit? It doesn't seem strange to me at all in light of that. And so believing in the virgin birth, first and foremost, affirms the truthfulness of Scripture and the faithfulness of our God the power of our God, the goodness of our God to do all that he says he will do in his way and in his time. The virgin birth also affirms the deity of Christ, that that Jesus is fully God. He was not conceived in the normal way. In fact, notice notice when when the angel Gabriel talks to, says to Mary that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. That designation, Son of God, is a very uh, used several times in Scripture of Jesus himself. And, it, and it's a designation that, that, in fact, the Jews in the New Testament tried to pick up stones at one point and stone Jesus for making such a claim because they knew clearly when Jesus said he was the Son of God, he was claiming to be God himself. He was claiming deity for himself, and they understood it very clear, and they were going to kill him for it, and eventually they did. And so, and so this... The, the result, the way in which God chose to come to this earth, being not born of a human father, but born or conceived through the Holy Spirit, affirms the deity of Christ. And this is absolutely essential to our faith. Because if Jesus is not fully God, then he is not an adequate sacrifice for your sins or mine. We could read so many passages in the book of Hebrews um, Hebrews chapter 9, in fact, if you were to start, uh, I really wrestled with uh, where to start and stop in Hebrews, but if you go to the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 is a powerful text, but if you started in 7, you can do this when you get home today, if you just start in chapter 7 of Hebrews, start reading, it, keeps, it gives these arguments and then it says, but when Christ came, then it gives some more arguments about Old Testament faith and sacrifices and the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant and how inadequate it is. But then it says again and again and again, I underlined it in red here, it says, but when Christ came, the greater, more perfect sacrifice, the greater high priest, whose blood was greater than the blood of bulls and goats. Why? Because he was qualified, because he's, he's like us and yet not like us. He is fully God. He is an adequate sacrifice for sin. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then the greater and the more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is not of this creation, 
He's really given this picture of the, the tent was the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the, the, the temple eventually. And it's the place where God dwelt, in a place, right? And now he's saying, but now that Jesus has come, he's the more perfect tent. God does not dwell in tents made by the hands of men, but now Jesus, who isn't of this earth in that sense, he's born from above. Now Jesus has come And it says, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if indeed the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is a temporary thing, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish, which we'll get to in a minute, to God, to purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living and true God. The virgin birth affirms that Jesus is, in fact, fully God, and Jesus himself affirms this over and over in the Gospels. And this is crucial for our salvation, for if Jesus is not God, he is not adequate He is not adequate to satisfy the payment and the penalty for your sins that you owe to an infinite God. But because Jesus is infinitely God, he is able, he's worthy to to take away sins. But it also affirms the humanity of Christ, obviously, right? When we think about the virgin birth, we think about him coming in the flesh. God with skin on, we would say, taking on flesh. And, And so it affirms that not only is he God which makes him adequate, but he also must become a man in order to die for mankind. He must become a human being and take on flesh. And the the virgin birth affirms this. He was, in fact, born of Mary, a virgin. He lived. Someone, Mary, changed his diapers at some point, right? That's hard to, you know, comprehend that. He was a human being. He grew up. We see him at 12 years old in the Gospel of Luke, in the temple, teaching. And it says he grew in strength and spirit. He, 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 was, he was a young man. He grew up to be a man. But why does that matter? Why does it matter? What's so important about that, right? We could say with some of the other pastors of America, does it really matter? Is it really that important? Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews affirms, he says, Since therefore the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, then he himself, talking about Jesus, likewise had to partake of the same things, that is, become flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and that he might deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In order for Jesus to die for humankind, for you and I, he had to become one of us. There had to be an actual physical sacrifice with actual blood that was spilled. This is the the picture all through the Old Testament. Jesus had to become flesh and blood. He had to be human in order to do that. And because he is human, we also see the affirmation in Hebrews chapter 4 where he says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. No, no, no. We have one who was like us in every way. 
He was a human priest. We have one who understands, and, and I can't help but think about yesterday. It keeps coming to my mind. We have a high priest who understands because he, he became like us, and he lived like us, and he suffered like us, and he died like we die. Right? So he took on flesh, and he had to take on flesh, otherwise he could not have sacrificed himself, as the author of Hebrews says, and shed his own blood once and for all for the forgiveness of our sins. So if he's not God, he's not adequate. If he's not human, human, then he cannot stand in our place. He cannot die. And so he became both. And how did he do that? How did God accomplish that? Through the virgin birth. Being conceived of the Holy Spirit. Through the Virgin Mary. But not only that, we could go on and on in that one category. The virgin birth also affirms the sin, the, Jesus' sinlessness. This is, this is an interesting point. If Jesus had been conceived in the natural, normal ways, um, and there's lots of ways that we could argue about the little details of this, but because he was not, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he did not assume Adam's sin, the original sin. And therefore, when the passage I just read for you, in, in, or quoted for you in Hebrews 4, where he's a faithful high priest who was like us in every respect, but the author goes on to say, but without sin. He was tempted, in fact, it says, he was tempted as we are in every respect, except he did not sin. He was sinless. Because the sacrifice for sin, even in the Old Testament this was true, but the sacrifice for sin had to be without blemish, right? Even, even in the Old Testament, when they would bring a lamb or a goat or a bull, it could not be crippled Elmer out there, you know, pull him out of the field. Ah, we'll give God this one, you know. He's got a broken leg anyway. He's no use to me. No, no, no. You, you had to, sorry about that illustration. Uh, you, you had to bring the best, a, a lamb, it said, without blemish, without spot, or without wrinkle. It had to be perfect. And so Jesus is that perfect lamb of God that is without sin, without blemish. This is what Hebrews affirms. He was the one who came. When Christ appeared, he came as the spotless lamb of God, and he gave himself and offered his own blood for our, our sins. Think about these verses. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4.15, but one who in every respect, what I just quoted for you, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained and separated from sinners, exalted above in the heavens. And so, Jesus, because he remained sinless, even though tempted and pressured and battered, he was that perfect, spotless lamb of God who could take away sins. And he died in our place to do that very thing. A couple more things. The virgin birth affirms our need for a savior. Just plain and simple. It affirms your need for a savior. Why would God... Why would the God of the universe go to such lengths to come to this earth only to die on a cross? Why, why would he do that? 
It affirms how much you and I need a Savior. That we are, we are in desperate need of a Savior. In fact, the greatest need that you have as you're sitting here this morning is not whether you're going to pay the bills on Monday, not whether you'll make it to work on time, not the traffic through Seattle, getting there, getting not getting there. The most significant need you have is a need for a Savior. There's nothing else that you need more than that. If you, if you don't have that, you have nothing. And if you have Jesus and you have nothing else, then you have everything. Do you know the Savior today? Do you know that that's your greatest need? And the reason why that's your greatest need is because one day you're going to stand before Almighty God. No matter what the wisdom of this world says, there is a judge, and he judges perfectly. And every single human being on this earth, including you and me, we will stand before him one day, and we will give an account for our lives. And for those who have Christ, for those who know the Savior, he will say, welcome, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. He will see you not for sins, not for the things that you've done or not done. He will see you in Christ. He will see his son, Jesus. He will see the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he will see that and he will say, Chris, holy and righteous, you are my son. Enter in. But what does John 3.35 tell us? Whoever has the son has life, but whoever does not have the son does not have life. And the wrath of God remains upon them. Psalm chapter 1 affirms that, that no one can stand in the judgment. No one will endure that day without Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is that he comes fully God and fully man, sinless, to die on the cross, to remove the stain of sin, to break down the barriers. The virgin birth is a picture of our desperate need for that. Lastly, Maybe the best. The virgin birth affirms the nature of God's grace. It affirms his grace. You didn't ask for a savior, did you? You weren't born into this world understanding your need. You didn't ask God to do anything, did you? None of these passages I've read had anything to do with God saying, well, I consulted with men, I thought it through with him, and we decided together this is how I'll go. No, what we see is God taking the total initiative on his own. He chose, right, at just the right time to come to this earth in the flesh to redeem us of our sins. We see this incredible picture of God's grace. One person put it this way, the birth of Christ is seen in which we see the initiative and the power of our God is a, an apt picture of God's saving grace in general, of which is in part, he says, it teaches us that salvation is by God's act and not our human effort. The birth of Jesus is like our new birth. Think about this, which is also by the Holy Spirit making us a new creation. The same way in which God conceived in Mary and gave life to this child who, became the, who was the Christ child, the same Spirit of God overtakes us as well, right? 
at a moment, at the right time, maybe today, and saves us, awakens our hearts to see the beauty and the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and draws us to himself to, by faith, trust in him, put our whole lives upon him. That is an act of grace. If you're here today, and this all seems like nonsense to you, and you're wrestling with all of this, I believe that God in his power, the power of his spirit can change your heart right now. That the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ can shatter even the hardest person sitting in this room. The biggest atheist, the smartest person in the room, God's spirit, is no, you're no match for God's spirit. You know how I know this? Because I was that hard person. And some of you were the same way. And one day, in a moment, in an instant, God showed up and he worked. Just like that same time in which Galatians 4 talks about. At the right time, God sent forth his son. Not me, not you. At the right time, God's timing, in God's way, in God's purposes, he acted. And we are saved as a result. So I encourage you today, encourage you with this truth. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Do you see his beauty? Do you see how committed our God is to redeeming a people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself? How committed he is to every single one of us to work, to act on our behalf As Paul says, quoting the Old Testament, do not harden your hearts. Do not delay. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in him today. Put your hope in him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, man, you're so good to us, God. I pray that today we we see in the virgin birth, we see your mercy. We see your grace that we sinners who are undeserving of any goodness, of any love from you whatsoever, but that we would see that in love, you sent your son to this earth. You came to this earth. You took on flesh. And that you chose to die on a cross in our place for our sins. That you were raised to newness of life three days later, conquering sin and death and the grave. So God, would you cause our hearts to trust in your son, Jesus, and to trust in him alone for our salvation. Wake us up, God, to see your beauty. Open our eyes to see it today and to trust in him today. I pray this and ask.